Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. Um, and I guess I should say in Vibers as well, since we have a liquid program yeah, today. Right. Um, some of these you'll find useful for the high holidays and um, well wishes for our... So, some of them will just like the taste of. Right. Um, anyhow, we're going to start off with... Um, it's interesting to know what what constitutes a kosher wine, and uh, Jay Bucksbaum is going to talk to us about royal wines, which in fact covers um, all the uh, the kosher ones for the high holidays. Yeah, well, their portfolio is entirely kosher product, yeah. and the wine collection is totally kosher. Uh, we've talked what not since uh, oh, three years ago to Jay Bucksbaum. I have a friend spelt the same way, calls it Buxbaum. I don't know, I guess that's a regional preference, right, Jay? Yeah. <laughs> but, tomato, tomato, you know? Yeah, I know. So, but anyhow, you are um, in charge of marketing and education for the Royal Wine Corp uh, slash Kadim. Kadim? Kadim. Kadim. It's, like, it's like the same word as Gedim, but get with a K instead of a G. Okay, and um, but you were the largest distributors of kosher wine, right? That is correct. In the whole world. That is correct. And, and that used to be a really ugly word. Yeah. Many, many years ago. Yeah. Well, I, was, I was sent forth on the day of Seder in New York where we were having Seder with one of Anne's friends. And I went to a wine store in Manhattan. <laughs> and I, this is in New York and, City. And they, and they had lots and lots of... Uh, kosher wines, including cream white Concord. Spokesperson for them, you remember, was Sammy Davis Jr.? Absolutely. So, so, so anyway, I, I, I was pretty sure that I didn't want standard kosher wine, and they had kosher sangria. He's really bought. So, so, so I bought kosher sangria. <laughs> and, was a traditional yeah, standard meal. And it, it was absolutely awful. Yep, now, now, now things have changed. Uh, yeah, and that's what a we're lot, gonna, yeah, a lot, a lot has happened and continues to happen. Yeah, and, let's, and, let's and, say why we're doing this is because, of course, we're looking forward to Passover, which starts on right. March thirtieth uh, and runs through April seventh. And um, as I said, the first question I asked Jay: How much has changed since we talked to you last three years ago? And you said. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> OMG, as they say on text messaging, which my kids are fond of uh, bringing me up to date on. Yeah, um, it's good you have somebody to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, I think you know, the two, I should say, the three areas that are of most note and that are most exciting for this particular Passover is, uh, uh, and, and this is, uh, I'm sorry, ascending order, is the continued evolution of California wines out of the Herzog Winery, the continued and amazing evolution and quality of Israeli wines out of Israel. But I think the most exciting and singular number of events for this Passover is the release of the 15 Grand Cru Bordeaux. That's amazing. are amazing, and, and some of which many of which have never been seen before simply because, um, you know, most Grand Cru's, especially the 15, which is considered such a highly rated vintage, don't need to make, you know, they, they pre-sell pretty much all of their wines while it's still in barrel, um, you know, on premiere. And uh, yet uh, we've gotten some of the greatest Grand Cru's, I wouldn't say, you know, not the first growths, but some of the greatest Grand Cru's, on this on this man's earth to make uh, you know smaller batches of this same wine that they make for everybody else under kosher supervision and therefore kosher for the kosher consumer. Well, now this represents most likely. I mean, the motive for this would be obviously that it's a growing market because I mean they're not going to do this out of the goodness of their heart, right? Absolutely. You know, people ask me that all the time. I mean. You take a, a, a winery like Las Combes, which has just made a kosher cuvee, or I should say just released a kosher cuvee for the 15, and people would ask me, why do that? You know, why would Las Combes bother? I mean, because it does mean 
that, you know, they have to, not they have to, but they're, and in this case, fortunately, they're very happy to uh, include a kosher um, rabbinic crew and integrate their kosher rabbinic crew into the production process. But why would they do that if they're selling every, you know, every single bottle that they make anyway? And the answer to that is very simple. The same question could be asked of them when they started releasing and selling wines to Japan or to China. When you recognize that there is a market, a high-end market for your wines that really seeks it out and wants it and needs to be serviced, they go there to do that. Uh, And I think it brings prestige not only to and services not only the market, that new market that they're serving, whether it be Japan or Hong Kong or China, but it also brings prestige to the winery itself. And that's what's happening in the kosher market, the kosher consumer, albeit, of course, the same thing with the non-kosher consumer, a small group wants the best that wines can offer. And so they want the Las Combs, they want the Cantonac Brown, for the first time again, available. They want the new vintage of uh, Giscourt in 15. They want the Leoville, which hasn't made a kosher cuvee in some many, many, many years, to come back and give them yet again another kosher cuvee. And these are the, these new wines, for the first time, are back, and so, in some cases are brand new. They want the Chateau Fontenelle, which is a... Uh, a list track, I believe, uh, from uh, the very famous, worldwide known uh, uh, Michel Michel Roland's personal winery, and you know when you put those those wineries together as a group and you're able to offer them to the kosher consumer, it's just it's just unimaginably fantastic for that group. They're really very excited about being about having those wines available to them. Now, how, how did you get to be in such a prominent position, your, your company, in this particular area? I mean, it, it's certainly specialized, and it used to be Mo, Mogan David, and Mo, what was the other one? Uh, That's a great question. Um, and, and I will tell you that the family that started this Royal Wine Corp here in the United States has been making wine since 1848. Uh, I read that figure. Is that true? Yeah, since 1848 in Czechoslovakia. And in fact, they were knighted, as if you will, as the suppliers to uh, the Czechoslovakian court and the, and the, you know, I guess the prime minister, I, I forget, he wasn't called prime minister, he was called, oh gosh. Dictator. <laughs> no, no. Well, they were the suppliers to the the kingly court yeah. and yeah, the assured the none of those wines empire. I'm sorry the Austro-Hungarian Empire the Austro-Hungarian Empire and none of those wines were kosher although they did make a small batch for themselves and for the families and for the local community it wasn't necessary for it to be kosher for the for the uh, Austro-Hungarian uh, emperor and uh, so when they came to America and they needed wine for the local market, uh, as was the case with many immigrants to America. They came to the shores of of New York, Ellis Island, etc., etc. But the only grapes that were available available were not the Vitis vinifera that we're so used to having fine wines from, but the Labrusca variety, which were only suitable for sweet, syrupy oh, so wines. That's and that's right. how... It's a relative, yeah, exactly, and that's how the Kedem and Manischewitz were born. In the end, though, they constantly sought after, and in 1978 brought the first Bordeaux in small, you know, what we call zip code Bordeaux. But over the years, they've been nonstop in trying to improve that, and over the years, they have. We've established a winemaker and a winemaking crew within the European uh, theater to address and to uh, go, go. I wouldn't say go after, but to uh, seek speak out. to, <laughs> you know, speak to all these wineries and let them know that there is a high-end uh, wine drinker in, within the Jewish community, whether it be in England or France or certainly America, and, uh, and they've listened 
And now you have the Rothschilds making kosher cuvées. You have, like I said, Lascombes and Cantonac Brown and Chiscour and Leoville Pofier and Malartique. And I mean, I can go on and on and on. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, the, the, you said, you said the people who came over to the United States to begin with back in the 1840s, but the wines that we're talking about here are being, are being made in the fine vineyards of Europe. That's correct. Now, is anybody, but let is me anybody... clarify, the, the family, the Herzog family did not come over in the 1840s. In the 1840s, they were very much at home in Czechoslovakia okay, making wines it, for Europe. It's only in the 19, in the late, in the mid 1940s when they needed to escape the right. horrible Holocaust that they, they escaped thanks to their Gentile workers who hid them throughout the war. Uh, that they were able to escape to the United States and then reestablish their winery here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. But n- but nobody's nobody's making kosher wines of this quality here in the U.S. yet, or or am I wrong? California. Uh, are the Californians doing it? Yes, and and okay. back in nineteen, I want to say nineteen eighty six, they started making wine. What we call what what you would call and what we all call them industry custom crush at other people's wineries, and then in nineteen uh, fourteen years ago, I believe um, they started they built their own winery in Oxnard, California, and now some of the most highly rated wines from California being made at the Herzog wine cellars in Oxnard, California. You know, before we go any further, um, I think listeners might be wondering, if they don't know, uh, what exactly, if, if these wines are exactly the same as mainstream high-end wine wines that, that uh, we drink, um, why, what makes them kosher? Okay, it's a great question. The difference between kosher food and non-kosher food or other kosher consumables and non-kosher consumables is ingredient-based as a general rule. So, for example, cookies, let's just use that as a silly example, cannot contain non-kosher ingredients such as gelatin or shellfish or, you know, pork products or um, fats that come from non-kosher animals, which sometimes they can or will. Uh, Drinks, uh, same thing. But in the case of wine, it has nothing to do with the ingredients. In the case of wine, because of ancient um, historics where wine was used in sacramental ritual rites amongst pagans, the rabbis decreed that even though the ingredients of wine is completely kosher, because grapes, there's nothing non-kosher about the grapes or grape juice, it's just the usage that was where it was used during the process by pagans that they wanted to prevent it from happening. So they decreed that from the crushing of the grape until the sealing of the bottle, the entire process needed to be overseen and handled by an observant Jewish crew. And that has remained in effect since ancient times. And so really, the difference between kosher and non-kosher wines is simply that, is the process not the ingredients. So, 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 Jace, so it's not, it's not like what a lot, a lot of wines are, are not vegan because egg, 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 because, because egg shells are used in the fining of the wine in the process. Correct. So, so it's, it's, and, and that's still true of wines being vegan. But, Correct. But, but there's, the similar thing does not apply, as, as you Correct. just explained. Right, so, the, so for example, you know, kosher wines can use egg whites as a fining agent. Okay. But what they can't use is gelatin. Yeah, because gelatin is an animal byproduct that often will come from non-kosher animals. And, for example, what they can't use is sodium casinate, which is a dairy product, which even though kosher would render the wine dairy, so therefore the wine couldn't be used during a meat meal. Mm-hmm. So now, now to be to be frank, many non-kosher wineries don't use gelatin and don't use sodium casinate either. Mm-hmm. But again, the key to it is that from the crushing of the grape until the wine is sealed in the bottle, it's over overseen and handled by an observant crew, so that 
it won't be defiled in a spiritual sense. It wouldn't have been a blessed for, for you know, Zeus or Apollo or some kind of uh, pagan ritual rite. Now, you've got some other good news for, for Jewish observant people. I think you, you mentioned in your, in your press release a sparkling wine that, that's in a, uh, a, a fairly expensive category, so it must be pretty good. Oh my gosh, the Rothschild family has, has begun, this is actually the third cuvee, I think the second or third cuvee that they've released, the Rothschild Champagne, which is the confluence of all the three Rothschild families that own Latour and Lafitte and Chateau Clark, have come together as one. It's the first time in, I don't know, about 90 years that they've come, you know, they're all friendly, but they, this is the first time they've come together to make wine together, and this is this French champagne, and they've agreed to make a smaller part of that cuvee of champagnes kosher. Now, the wine is absolutely magnificent. Now, where is it made? Is it? I, I thought in Champagne, France. Oh, it is made in the Champagne region. Of course. Okay. Of course. Well, I, I thought it what, would have to be. And what's interesting about it is, unlike many other wineries that blend. You know, one of three different wines, uh, Pinot Noir, uh, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. They use 100% Chardonnay, and their feeling is, even though it's more expensive, it's much more elegant, and much more, they even say complex, and uh, much more difficult and more expensive to make, but really makes a really magnificent wine. I, I have to tell you, you know, one of the things that I do when I go, I was just away for Shabbat for this past Sabbath yeah. at my um, at my daughter's parents' in-laws' home, and I brought several wines, one from Israel, one from California, one from uh, from France, and, and I'm sorry, one from Italy, and also one, the Champagne. And you can always tell what the favorite of the evening is or of the meal is when it's the first the first one to go is the one that, <laughs> exactly. that you know is the favorite and guess what the Rothschild champagne was the first to go mm-hmm. and this is even amongst you know we had like a half I would say nine or eight or nine people and a couple of them only like sweeter wine you know like Moscato types oh, yeah. yet this is the wine that they drank first and it's completely dry so you know, I, I would say we're very excited about more, more, more than anything else, the growth and quality and prestige wines that are now available to the kosher consumer. Now we were talk- we were talking before we came on the air about about the Rothschild family in my native land of Britain, because we, we we went to their wonderful baronial estate during the time we were visiting last December, but. It, occur, it occurs to me that if you if you haven't yet started working on a kosher uh, sparkling wine or sh- or Pinot Noir from England, it be, be a good idea to jump on it pretty soon because all the land's going fast. <laughs> oh, yeah, and people, especially champagne. You know, I, I'll tell you that uh, the only, I'm not, uh, frankly, and I know pretty much a lot about wines, but yeah, I'm, I'm really not that familiar with wines that are actually grown and produce um you know, in the UK, right? Well, well, except is, for except for some aging of ports, right. uh, well, it's, I'm not really familiar it's, it's with wines that that are produced there. Here's 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 what's been happening. There was well, a, the, there was <laughs> there was a tradition of making sweet wines using grape juice imported from somewhere else, uh-huh. which was just totally awful stuff. Right. Uh, but but with with the onset of global warming in the last. Hundred years or so, enterprising people have noticed that the temperatures uh, in both the winter and the and the summer months are very similar to those in the Champagne region of France. So, oh, so I'd love so, to explore that. So, if you can so, hook why, me up. so why not? <laughs> if you can hook me up, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I, the uh, yeah, I, I, there are, there are a couple of names. I'll, I'll look them up and I'll I'll email them to you. That but, would be wonderful. But it's interesting. Well, there's that, that the, woman uh, that we knew in London who uh, her whole shop sold nothing but UK wines. Remember? I don't, you'll have to help me find that one. I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't remember. I'm enamored. That. I'm enamored by their 
Dover soles, and I'm enamored by their cheeses, <laughs> and of course. I'm of course enamored by some of their whiskeys, yeah, but right. frankly, I have not been aware of or, you know, sensitive to the wonderful, perhaps sparkling wines or other wines that they're able to produce. Well, it's there. not let, the let, first thing let, I pick off of the wine. Let, let, me, let, me, <laughs> let me give you. A, let me give you a starting point, and then we'll we'll look up a couple of the others. The uh, there's one in particular that's very well known in Kent called Chapel Down. Let's go, baby. I'm ready to make a kosher cuvee any time they are. <laughs> and and uh, as as I mentioned, that's that, a new, that's this, a thought. That's really I mean, great. Jay. This is this is somewhere that's only a hundred miles away from the Rothschild estate, and there's every reason to suppose that in fact you could go, you could grow champagne grapes there as well. Because it's well, you know, it's you know, it's nice. What's for me personally, what's nicest about exploring that possibility. It gives me an excuse to visit the country. Uh, <laughs> Something else. Yeah, I I had another question here. Um, sure. It, it gets complex. The uh, there are all these traditional foods for Passover, um, but it's it's changing. I mean, the foods are changing, and and how many inquiries? I mean, because you've got a much more global input um, instead of just askadosi. The um, that's my chocolate maker. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, the menus are getting more global, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. So, so if somebody comes to you for help, um, how do they do that? I mean, can, do you have a, on your website, do you answer questions, do you talk to somebody about planning a match between the kosher wines for Passover and the change in kosher menus? Well, I'll, I'll do two things for you. Okay. Some, one thing that I never do, but I'll do anyway here. Anyone in your listenership is certainly welcome to contact me directly at my personal email at the letter J, Booksbaum, B-U-C-H-S-B-A-U-M, at Kedem.com. But there is a wonderful, wonderful website called Kosher.com, simply K-O-S-H-E-R dot com, which has an amazing array of recipes and, and dishes for the holidays. I will say that the reason, you're, you're absolutely right on target, Anne, and I will say that one of the reasons for that is, is that because of social media and the ability to communicate across, across boundaries, whether they be uh, geographical or emotional or social, is that, you know, you have Chinese Jews, you have uh, Australian and Iranian Jews. Yes, that's true. It's small, but you still have them. I already uh, know an Iraqi Jew. <laughs> Iraqi Jews, Israeli Jews, South American Jews, Chilean Jews, Argentinian Jews, all of which have their own, you know, lovely uh, local fare that they incorporate into their local seders. Yes. And as long as it's kosher and and meets the qualification of non-leavened, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, there's no reason why they can't be included in the seder meal. You know, it used to be Americans led the way with, you know, corned beef or chicken or gefilte fish or whatever, <laughs> and now there's such a diversity of humanity that... Um, there's such an eclectic group of of the possibility of kosher foods that can be included in the Seder that that's exactly what's happening. And I, there's one thing I want to get back to, though. We keep talking about how the kosher consumer wants these high-end Grand Cru's. What we insist on on pushing forward is that we would like people to taste and enjoy our kosher wines, our kosher cuvées, not because they're kosher, but simply because they're good. Which is the be- that's the biggest change that's come about, and that's probably why you've got more consumers. <laughs> because exactly. It used to be that the wines were so awful. You know? I mean, I'll just give you one example of that. The single biggest SKU, and that's wine speak yeah, for the single right. biggest single item, on a, in our portfolio is a Moscato Diasti from Italy. Mm-hmm. 90%, we guesstimate, 90% of that consumer is not Jewish or kosher. <laughs> right, right. They just are drink. It happens to be a kosher cuvee, 
had to be a kosher wine, but they're drinking it because they love it, because <laughs> yeah. it's just good wine. Right, right. <laughs> and now, we would like to, it whether it's our Baron Herzog Jeunesse or our, I mean, it's a little bit more difficult with some of the Grand Cru's because they're much more expensive initially anyway. Yeah. Not yeah. Ten, ten years down the road, you won't know the difference because they're going to be so much more expensive. But they're just made great. They're just made great, we would hope. And if, frankly, and if they're not made great, don't drink them because we didn't do a good job. Mm-hmm. But but don't drink them only because they're kosher. Choose them, and I'm talking to a non-kosher consumer. The kosher consumer pretty much has no choice. But the non-kosher consumer, explore the kosher range of wines because they happen to just be great wines, especially when it comes to the Baron Herzog and Jeunesse uh, group of wines that we're making out of California. Now, what what do we say? What's what's the right thing to say? I, in in English, I can say Happy Seder. What, what what would you say in Hebrew? In Hebrew, you say a kosher seder. Have a happy and kosher seder, meaning, you know, do it right. That's all it means, really. Well, thank you so much for bringing us up to date. It's been fun as always to talk to you, and you're always bringing us. Exciting new information. We must we must get back together again yeah. uh, before too many more years have passed. Yeah. And you always prove that wine, indeed, could be a mitzvah. <laughs> I have to tell you, we have, it seems like there was a hitch, but we have a whole series, a whole slew of, of uh, samples coming your way. They should have been there already, but, you know, if, if and when you'd like you you get them and like to taste them and you know do a quick simple review of what you've tasted and I'm I'm happy to say you know to hear from you well you know what we tasted nine of them and well these two were okay but not to the standards we'd like that's fine too so you know, if that happens and you're in the mood, I'm here for you. Okay, well, we well, love talking to you. Thanks. Well, watch, watch this space, listeners, and uh, we'll 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 get, we'll get back to Jay about that. In I want course. to especially thank you and your lovely wife, <laughs> but more importantly, especially your listenership for for hearing us out here today. Thank Thanks, you, Jay. Bye bye. Welcome back. Next up, um, I guess you could call this along the lines of two men walk into a bar. <laughs> uh, let's listen to this um, amazing story as told by Gustavo Gonzalez about the formation or founding of Mira Winery. Gustavo, welcome, yes, welcome to On the Menu Radio. Uh, you're talking to us from California, where it's at, where outside it sounds like it's a little windy, but at least there's no snow on the ground, which is what we have for our, for our trouble just at this time of the year. Now, for, our, for our listeners, we're talking to Gustavo Gonzalez, who is the winemaker for Mira Wine. And, and it, it's it's a it's a bit of a story, but it, but it's worth listening to. So. The story goes, there was this man in a bar, and, and he started talking to another man in a bar about, about all, all things in, to do In D.C., no less. In Washington, D.C., in the, in the elegant Hay Adams Hotel. And somehow, after discussing a wide variety of other things, the conversation turned to wine. And uh, perhaps you can explain why. Wow. 
Well, uh, yeah, I was sitting there after uh, doing some wine events in D.C. at at, this, uh, at the Hay Adams and talking to the bartender. He's talking about the golden ratio because I've always liked art and music and science, of course, to you, and its prevalence in nature and the Fibonacci sequence and things like that. And a couple of seats over was another gentleman who uh, was working in D.C. in public affairs whose name is uh, Bear, who kind of overheard the conversation and had some interest in it. It turned out that he was a big wine aficionado. And then we started talking, and then we started talking about making our own wine at some point and and, uh, what would our wine look like and what kind of wines would would we make. And then a few years later, um, we kept in touch, of course, and a few years later we had the opportunity to actually execute on what we had discussed at the bar several years beforehand. That's kind of what led to this. So you were already a winemaker. I was already a winemaker. Yeah, I've been making wine since '95. So at that time, I was the winemaker at the Rondavi Winery in Napa. Okay, there you go. That's a good. Yeah, that's, I was responsible that's a good for all place. the red wines there for for a while. Okay, we 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 know a number of the members of the Mondavi family. They like fighting each other, didn't they? Kind well, of a, kind of, unfor- kind of think- unfortunate. Had kind of an unfortunate aficionado for for punching each other out. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we won't go any further than that. Right. So, so the so the venture got off the ground in when roughly like about two thousand nine. Yeah. So our first finish was two thousand nine, and and uh, the way that it got off the ground is that you know through my relationships at the Rotmandavi Winery, I worked with some of the best, fantastic growers in the Napa Valley, and it just happened that two thousand nine, one of those growers, uh, Larry Hyde, and his famous Hyde Vineyard, had some Syrah available. And, as luck would have it, that's one of Bear's favorite varietals, is Syrah. So we decided, you know, why, uh, Larry Hyde offered it to me, asked me if I could use it anywhere, and I said, well, I can probably use it if I wanted to start making my own brand, if you would let us. And he agreed to it, and here we are now, several years later, with uh, not only Syrah, but several other varietals. It sounds so casual. <laughs> how, how <laughs> that's kind of how it happened, you know? It's like you, we, you have that thought in your head, and then when the right opportunity comes, you know, some people call that luck, but you know you got to be ready for when the opportunity comes your way to take advantage of it. Well, now let let's make sure that uh, huh, listeners understand the model that has been your model up until now, which is that which is that you bought fruit from specialized grape growers, but but non but non winemakers in the Napa Valley region, and and that and that was how you made your wine. Yeah, that's correct. Most of the people that grow grapes don't necessarily make their own wine in, in Napa or in a lot of places. You know, they specialize in growing grapes, and then they, they sell them to different wineries. And that's been our model so far, and up until last year when we bought a property in Yountville. But, uh, you know, we'll continue to buy grapes just like most people do. And it's one excellent way to secure that you always have really good fruit to make your wine, because as we know, you know, the great wine comes from great grapes. Now, is it, as you say, really all-natural wine? We're all natural. Yeah, we I, we're minimally invasive in, in the techniques that we use to make the wine. So, you know, we don't add. Uh, we use just your traditional ingredients. Uh, you know, what, the fermentations are executed through yeast and the bacteria to, to do the malolactic fermentation, and then French oak for aging, and, and pretty much that's it. But but not not any of this biodynamic nonsense. No, I mean our growers are sustainable growers, and I think it's a it's a much more interesting way to approach. Uh, grape growing and agriculture than, than to be so dogmatic as biodynamic. I mean, there's definitely great things about biodynamic and organic, but I think sustainable kind of uh, encompasses or embraces a lot of those things and just allows us to kind of go with the flow of what nature gives you any given season because, you know, every season is different and you can't always and shouldn't always be doing the same things year after year just on a schedule. You know, nature doesn't necessarily always work on a schedule. Now, yeah, well, you've had your challenges this year. Yeah, I, I was going to ask about that next because we're on we're, we're on the sub- subject of Napa Valley, and you, you can't avoid you what can't avoid noise. You can't avoid thinking about the uh, tra- tragic fires that have happened. How, how much has that impacted you? We were fortunate that we had finished harvesting right around the time that that the fires began. So none, none of our the vineyards that we work with or the grapes that we work with were impacted. Everything was already in the winery. So the big concern that we had was just because there was smoke in the air that we were going to maybe get some of the smoke quality into the wine. But we took some measures to make sure that we didn't expose the, the fermenting must to air or, or to the environment all that much so that we could try to minimize or reduce uh, the, the contact it had with any kind of smoke that might be in the air. 
But we were pretty lucky that uh, we were pretty much finished by the time all that all that started. So okay, now did but that did that actually harm the vines themselves? Though I mean, they have to come back next year and try to do the same thing. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, luckily for us, the the, the people we work with, um, none of the vines were were impacted, uh, aside from having smoke in the air. Um, <laughs> There were no fires, like basically, or none of the vineyards that we work with caught on fire. So, I think we're going to be in pretty good shape for next year. Good, great. Well, we we had the opportunity to s- sample one of your newest entrants into your lines, which was a which is a, a really exquisite Merlot. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> but this is a new this is a new style for you, right? Yeah, you know, we, we've kind of held back on making a Merlot. We've been uh, working with Merlot from the Hyde Vineyard uh, since, I think it was 2012 was our first vintage with them, with Merlot. And we've just always used it to blend. And then suddenly, um, 13 and 14, you know, just learning how to work with the, the, the grapes in the in the cellar, we started changing our understanding a little bit more of the profile. You know, cause it's a much a cooler area, cooler area down in the south of Napa, maybe... Could be considered not as suited for Bordeaux varietal, so it takes a little bit longer to ripen. But then we just started noticing that the 13 and 14 vintages of this Merlot were just outstanding. And we started thinking it might be a good idea to bottle some of this up on its own because it's so good. And so in 14, um, we planted ahead of time that we really wanted to make a Merlot bottling that year. And so from directly from the vineyards and into the winemaking, you know, we, we came out with the idea that it was going to be its own wine. And so it's made this wine that's uh, it's got you know these fruit characters, but it's also got this uh, kind of schist rock stone character to it. This mineral that's really interesting that I really don't don't find in too many merlots in California. Well, I, I was going to give you a, a, a yardstick to help our listeners to understand what what it is you're describing, if they're if they're not into so many winemaker words. And when we think of merlot in California, we think of duckhorn. So if, I, so if I was saying, well, it's sort of like Duckhorn, but it's not, or whatever, whatever, however you might describe that kind of comparison, how would you do that? Well, I, I think our tends, tends to have a little bit more concentration and length. Okay. And there's just a little bit more to it, I think. I mean, the vineyard doesn't produce that much fruit, and we, we only make like 300 cases of this wine. So the fruit that comes out of there is just a little bit more concentrated and might be... Um, just a little bit bigger than duckhorn, let's say, from a density point of view, from a volume in your mouth point of view? No, I, I was thinking of substantial as a word to describe it. So <laughs> yeah. You can, you can borrow that if, if you like. Yeah, okay. Substantial for me. Now, what, what will change with grapes coming from your newly owned land? So we're, we planted, uh, there was already Chardonnay and Merlot growing there, and we pulled all that because it was virus, and we're planting uh, primarily... We're planting Merlot again, Cabernet Franc and Petit Verdot, which I think are sensational blenders, and they do well in that part of the valley because uh, the new property is, is basically in Yountville. And um, just that area there, I think those, these varietals that don't take as long to ripen as Cabernet are going to do really well there. So I'm curious to see what the profile of those three vineyards are going to be once we get the fruit going. Probably in 2020 will be the first vintage of that. Well, you you must you must make sure when 2020 comes along, we get we get some to try, since we're here. So we're here sort of right at the beginning. Uh, Certainly, it's it's really Gustave. It's really a fascinating story, uh, and and Bear is a big part of it. So say say hello to Bear next time you talk to him from Ann and for Peter, sure. and uh, we thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, we we hope you'll have a great day and a successful growing season next year too. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye bye now.
Welcome back. We're going to move along here from wine to tea um, or other healthy beverages. And we're going to start by talking to Lee White, who has a company with a tongue twister of the name Super Tuber Tonic with Tea with Turmeric. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Lee White, you have been cooking your whole life, you said. And uh, you've been making a tea called, uh, under the label, Mendocino Tea. And then just recently you started producing something called Tupertonic and Super Tupertonic Teas, uh, which I have been um, guzzling (laughs) for the last week or so. Um, They have certain ingredients in them that have health benefits, right? They do indeed. Uh, talk to me about your, uh, why, first of all, why are there um, different grades of, of these? Like there's a, one, is two, an organic, another one is a um, tuber tonic, the other one is a super tuber tonic. I mean, are they different strengths? They are. Um, a lot of uh, people who drink the the, the tuber tonic found that they wanted as much tonic as as much turmeric as they could get, and so um, I doubled the turmeric and the recipe. And so basically, they're the same recipe, mm-hmm. but with the double turmeric, um, they're getting more of the turmeric benefit. And the other thing that happened, the tuber tonic is is quite spicy. You probably noticed, and yeah, with the double turmeric, I, I sliced some fresh. Tuber, uh, uh, turmeric root in in mine. <laughs> I see. Okay. Well, you know, with the double turmeric, it just makes it a little bit less peppery. You know, and um, it's such a great taste. You I know, like but it. Yeah, it makes me feel healthy. Makes people healthy. It's anti-inflammatory. I'm not a doctor, um, so I can't. I can't say specifically, but rumor has it, I've done a lot of research on it, rumor has it that turmeric is quite anti-inflammatory. In fact, four out of five of the ingredients for this tea are anti-inflammatory. And then the fifth one is elderberry, which is rumored to um, be antiviral. I see. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the one that I haven't laid hands on yet, the elderberry. Uh, it's pretty wonderful uh, stuff. Yeah, I have to get some of that. I, I needed to speak up a little bit. Yeah. Um, could you speak up a little louder? I can. Great. Yeah. That's I've good. been known to do that before. How's this? Okay. Better. So, better. Keep it up there. Now, okay. So, so what we're talking about is, with the, the tonic, is that these are teas with ingredients that have health benefits in, in the, and, you, and you give instructions. You can... Um, you can boil them up. You can have them hot. You can have them cold. Um, and, and it's your focus now. Uh, we we were calling them something else. But what what led you to try to to do this kind of thing when you were doing fine with your regular fine teas? Well, you know, Anne, I I had a friend who was uh, very dear to me. She had stage four cancer. Um, she went to a clinic, a uh, cancer clinic, and they did a whole bunch of tests on her, and they said that the one thing that responded best to her cancer was turmeric. Wow. And um, I, we tried all kinds of things, getting the turmeric into her. We cooked with it. We made a tea with the fresh turmeric. We did as many things as we could. Now, her... Um, her cancer moved into her liver quite quickly and we were not able to save her but i felt so strongly that if there was something out there that was as clearly antioxidant as turmeric that it should be put out there for the public and then after that i learned that turmeric is a specific anti-inflammatory for arthritis yes well i have arthritis yeah, you so know, so um, all the more reason to come up with it. And I, I started um, by making fresh teas with fresh uh, tu- organic turmeric and fresh ginger. And then um, apparently you can get it most of the year now fresh. But, 
but um, at the time when I started playing with it, it was hard to get fresh turmeric all year round. So I thought, well, you know, we should have something that has a shelf life, you know, that could be made up at any time and can sit, off, uh, sit on the shelf until you need it. Um, although I find that I, I drink tubertonic every day. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do that or I will do my own version of it, but absolutely the turmeric is a go with me. It is. Yes. <laughs> There's a study that um, uh, someone was telling me about where they uh, took 100, 150 people, whatever, and uh, half of them they put on turmeric and the other half on 800 milligrams of um, uh, ibuprofen. And and they drank, it was not there very much quantity, actually. It was like two cups a week or something, or one cup every two weeks. But the the inflammation rate was um, it was decreased better and faster and controlled better by the turmeric than by the 800 milligram ibuprofen. I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. It makes a huge difference. Actually, it's pretty funny. When I first started making it, I was drinking it every day. My body just craved it, and so I was drinking two or three cups a day. And then you know something happened and. I I was doing something else and not thinking about it, and I didn't drink any of the tubertonic for a day or two. And all of a sudden, you know, my arthritis started kicking up, and I'm going, what's going on? Why is this happening? How come I ache? And then I remembered, oh, I should make some tubertonic. So I went back to it, and that it's been pretty, I've been drinking it pretty constantly ever since. Now, you were recently at the Fancy Food Show, at the West Coast Fancy Food Show. How was this tea received? Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. There are 20,000 people, supposedly, that go to that. There are 1,500 vendors. And I have this little tiny booth that's, that's along with a whole bunch of other booths from California. And um, people would come by, and they would have, a cup of it. They like the way it tastes. And and we started saying, listen, you know, your feet are going to hurt after you've been walking around all day long. So come on back. Well, we had people, people from actually the other booths started coming back every afternoon and <laughs> singing the praises of the tea. And um, it, it kind of became a habit for people to swing by to a couple times a day. So I picked up a bunch of customers that way, and certainly a lot of fans. It was really amazing. Well, that's good. What are some of the other ingredients? It's turmeric, ginger, elderberry, cinnamon, and black pepper. And I use um, I use true cinnamon, which is from Sri Lanka. Right. And um, which is it's, more expensive? It's, it's milder and sweeter than yeah. the cassia cinnamon that most teas use. Yeah, I'm, I don't like that cassia stuff. Somebody gave me a whole bunch of cassia broth, um, bark, and I, I couldn't stand it. Yeah, <laughs> very harsh. It, it tastes, um, it tasted sort of woodsy to the extreme, like rotten woodsy. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's pretty pungent stuff. Yeah. So anyhow, so you have this market you're developing. Um, you have a lot of orders to fill now. You can continue selling what you're doing. What What are your plans? Are you expanding? Are you down the line? What do you envision yourself doing with your tea lines? Actually, you know, I I really believe that this tea should be um, expanded as much as possible. So as many people as can will be drinking it. I, I'd like to see it be... Um, right straight down the line in between coffee and tea. It has no caffeine. And um, and so people can start drinking it in the afternoons when they don't want to be drinking caffeine and they want something that won't keep them awake at night. Um, I want to get it as big as possible. Um, I, I, I love the idea of it. But at the same time, um, since I began the tea company in 2003 when I was 58 years old and thought maybe I was too old to start a business, I want to go out there and tell women to follow their dreams. Um, I want to do motivational speaking. I love speaking to groups of people. Um, and I think now is the time for women to be hearing um, 
uh, as much information as possible about how what a positive change it is for them to go into business after their kids are grown and they have a little time to be creative in the manner that they've always wanted to be. Now you're you're a little bit out of the way there, aren't you? You're not you're not just down the road from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or just down the road from San Francisco. Put put, put a dot on the map for for where you're doing this wonderful work, and then tell us some more about how people can get this tonic for themselves and your website and my website. Okay. Well, um, the easiest place to get Tubertonic at this point is um, at Amazon.com. Okay. There you go. Boy, those Amazonians, man, they're taking over the world, aren't they? <laughs> they are. They are. So I'm really happy to be there. I don't have the Super Tubertonic on there yet, but I intend to sometime soon. I've been too darn busy to sit down and do what I need to to get that together. But it, Tubertonic is there, and it's the good stuff. So... Um, they can order a bag of that, um, and then MendocinoT.com is my website, and it's easy to order from that. It's a Shopify site, so there's a shopping cart, and um, I'm happy to send it out from here. And you're right, uh, we're quite remote, um, but it's a good thing. <laughs> and you're about to debut a chai. I have invented a chai that I adore, and I keep it on my stove at all times. I have a wood stove. So I keep my chai warm on the wood stove all day, and uh, it's basically, it's tubertonic chai. So it's basically all the ingredients that are in tubertonic, but I've also added um, black tea and Earl Grey tea and um, cardamom and cloves. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, it's delicious. And, and I'll you, have to send you guys some. <laughs> I think you'll like it. And and you live up there with a special friend whose first name is the same as mine. Special friend? We've been married for over 25 years, yes. <laughs> oh, well, well, Anne and Peter have been married considerably longer than that. Ah, <laughs> uh, you lucky people. <laughs> yeah, but but, uh, we, we, but Anne's the one who drinks tuba tonic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and, and I love it. It's a great product, and I want to congratulate you on moving forward. With this, you could have rested in your laurels with Mendocino tea, but you've tackled a whole new area of, of expertise, um, fulfillment. So congratulations to you, Lee White. Yeah, Lee, thanks a lot for being part of the show. Thank you so much, Ann and Peter, for reaching out, finding me, getting me on your show. Thanks. Bye, Lee. Bye. So now we're finishing off today's program with a conversation with um, a frequent contributor to On the Menu, Kim Kassar, who is the spokesperson for Keiko, a company with an incredibly rich and uh, deep uh, collection of wonderful kosher products. And, and in particular... Today for, for it's going program. to be Wonder Melon and... And, Be- and beetology. beetology, which we adore, and Wisotsky teas. We're going to be talking to Kim Kassar, who's becoming our BFF these days, <laughs> primarily because she's a spokesperson for a company called uh, Keiko, which seems to have new products galore. Um, how many products do you have, do you think? Well, if we count all the products that we both sell and distribute, we are somewhere around 2,000 different products. 2,000, okay. Well, I mean, I've had a good many of them, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And they're all delicious, of course. Oh, they are. I mean, they're good products. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking to you over and over again. (laughs) Um, The the ones on the agenda today are from um, a, a line you call New What?, uh, I believe we're going to talk about Wonder Melon. We are going to be talking about that, but uh, all of these um, products are, like, healthy. Is that how we describe them? Yeah. Uh, we take what we call a better-for-you approach with all our products. So we're trying to deliver either the best quality, the best ingredients, and certainly the best flavor experience. Right. Well, Peter is madly in love with this Wonder Melon. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And, and it's not... It's not the kind of thing that sort of trips off your tongue. I mean, a lot of a lot of people we may imagine watermelons. It's probably got remnants of seeds in it. It's, pro- it's probably altogether too sweet. 
It's so, not. So how did you come up with the formulation? Sure. So Wondermelon um, was developed by uh, our, our chief Wondermelon officer over here. And um, what he does is looks for all, all natural organic ingredients that can come together and, and create a different um, beverage experience. So with Wondermelon, we started with uh, an ingredient that I believe it's somewhere around 82% of the U.S. public says, yes, we like watermelon. So we said, okay, well, let's start there. It's got a ton of different health benefits. It's got a delicious flavor. And we just partnered that with a few other ingredients to make it unique and different and really delightful. And after several different tests and several different um, iterations, we came out with two different uh, flavors. One is cucumber basil, and the other is lemon cayenne, both with a watermelon base. Yeah, I like the cayenne myself. Ah, I like the cayenne as well. But cucumber is uh, certainly wonderful on a very hot day. Oh yes. Yeah. Now the the, the, the neat part about it is not 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 only is it delicious if it's just watermelon. It's also delicious when you mix it with things like vodka and gin. <laughs> and gin you read and, and, and my te- mind. And tequila. Um, well, not, not only vodka, they're actually delicious with tequila as yeah, well. Yeah. So you can make a, a Wondermelon tequila margarita. So, I think he's been doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I have the, and the, the other startling one was, well, l- l- let me let you pronounce it. It starts with a B. Uh, the betology. Betology. Oh, betology, yes. No, uh, we yeah. talked to you before about it, but um, are these the original flavors or have you expanded the flavors? Um, the betology, we have five flavors, and um, that was what we launched with, and, and we're starting to understand what people like best, and um, it seems like the beet and cherry is our number one flavor. Um, the beauty of that product is it's three cold-pressed organic ingredients. It's just cherry, apple, and beets, and, um, you know, about 100 calories, and people seem to, to absolutely love it. Well, we, we, we love beets, but we, we had an unpleasant surprise. One day we were, we, we were at a food conference, and one of the speakers was Sarah Moulton, who at the time was a, with Gourmet Magazine, I guess, and she's in front of an audience of probably 100 people. She said, I hate beets. <laughs> they smell that like that is the consumer we like. They smell like dirt. <laughs> well, you know, this well, is not totally um, wrong because I read an article and some people, it's just like some people can't eat cilantro because yes. it's soapy. Some people yes. cannot eat beets because what they read in their mouth is dirt. Right. Well, and that's the reason why betology is called betology, actually. It's, it's about the science of developing a beverage that has layers of flavor that is really delicious and doesn't happen to taste like dirt. So yeah, our beet blends are, are really surprising. So, so when I say I, I love those kind of people who hate beets, anytime a um, consumer comes up to any of our demos across the country and says, oh, I don't like beets, I, I always tell them, I said, well, you know what, you have just crossed the line. Anytime <laughs> someone tells us they hate beets, you must sample our beetology. And they take a sip of the juice, and then their eyebrows pop open, and their eyes pop open, and they go, wow. That's actually really good. And I said, that, my friend, is the beet face. You have just made the beet face, which is, I actually do like beets when they're presented in a delicious way. Now, now what, what does the cocktail master say about beetology? What, what, oh, what, what, well, what goes? Let me tell you. The best way, in my personal opinion, to enjoy beetology is as a beet Bloody Mary on a beautiful Sunday brunch where you take our beaten veggie that has veggies like carrots and kale in there, and you put that with, of course, our friend vodka, and you can spice it up if you want, and you get your vitamins, and you get your vodka, and you get your brunch, and life is just magnificent. Oh, boy. How many flavors? You have five. We have five flavors. Can you run through those? Sure. So uh, beet and cherry, like I said, is our number one. Our number two flavor is beet lemon ginger, which is also very good. Yes, great for a cocktail as well. Um, We have beaten berry, which pulls in flavors like bilberry and strawberry and raspberry along with the beets. Um, Then we go really sweet. We have a beet and tropical fruit flavor that has pineapple and mango. 
as well as the beets. And then all the way on the other spectrum is the beet and veggie, which is a little bit more hearty, a bit more savory, and again, perfect for that beet Bloody Mary. Yeah, I love that one too. Yeah. Um, the, the next one we were going to talk about is, um, you need to tell me more about this, the Wisotsky teas. Yes, Wisotsky tea, one of my favorites. Um, I actually used to work at Twining's Tea. That's where I got my start, and they will always be family to me. And right. um, I, I used to work closely with with Sam Twining. Um, you know, the I think he was right. the ninth generation of Twining family. Um, just a wonderful man. And we started working with Wisotsky about a year ago. And they've got just another rich history. You know, Twinings has been around for 300 years. Wazowski's been around for 160 years. That, is that old, huh? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they're in Israel? They're in Israel. Yep, they started in Russia, actually. But now yeah. they're in Israel. They are, I want to say, somewhere in the space of like an 80% share of the tea market in Israel. So they're very, very strong. And what makes them unique is they're steeped excuse the pun, in history, but they also have this great innovative spirit, and they come out with these new and different flavors and unique um, tea experiences every year. So the one I'm in love with right now is um, the chai tea line. Um, so chai is very popular in the United States, but Wazatsky took a, a different approach to it in that they created these, again, similar to Beatology, right? They created these great blends. They brought these premium ingredients together in a way that, like no one else, and, and you can actually see the beauty of their ingredients. So when you open a box of Wazatsky chai tea, first of all, you are hit with this amazing aroma of those warm spices that you get in chai. My favorite is the salted caramel chai. Oh, yeah, I've been using that in iced tea. Is it not divine? And, yeah. and that's the thing. It's great in iced tea. I can't wait till it gets cold in the fall to make my hot tea. But they come in these beautiful silk pyramid bags where yes. you can actually see the size of the tea leaves. And they look like tea leaves. They don't look like little specks of, of what used to be tea. Yeah, so not it's dust. Just, it's definitely not dust. Exactly. And so yeah. you can see um, just all those amazing ingredients in there. And they've really fine-tuned these blends where they're they're truly just delicious and different, and, and they, they kind of warm the soul. You know, I look forward to tea season every year. We also have a pumpkin spice chai, which, of course, you know, comes September 1st. That's what I'm switching over to. Yeah. And it just brings you right into the season. And, and this goes with bourbon? <laughs> yes, of course it goes with bourbon, especially on a very, very, very cold day. Oh, gee. <laughs> no, uh, I, can't, I can't imagine what you're going to do next. Do you, can you let us in on the secret of what you're going to do next? Well, um, the secret in Wazatsky um, that we've just released is a new Nonament tea, which is very, very new to the United States. Um, Nonament is a Mediterranean mint, and it's, you know, I try to tell consumers it's not spearmint and it's not peppermint. It's a mint like no other, which is actually our tagline. Uh-huh. Um, and we've got five SKUs, and the whole concept here is we built this tea on the foundation of that mint and then layered the tea on and layered on the other um, ingredients that, that benefit that tea. So kind of like beetology where it all starts with the beet, in non-mint it all starts with the Mediterranean mint. Kim, how does this whole thing work? I mean, how does the company work? I mean, you import things, you develop things. Tell, give us a little brief explanation of what the company is about. Of course. Well, at Keiko, we work hard, I always like to say, first and foremost. But we partner with different brands all over the world. Some brands like Beatology and Wondermelon are um, developed and created and cared for all by Keiko from beginning to end. There's other brands like Wazatsky Tea where we partner for the U.S. market, and we bring some of these innovations um, to the U.S. market. In the example of Nonamit, we actually help them design the boxes and um, finish the kind of marketing concept and the um, the positioning of the tea as well as the final ingredients. So that one we developed from the bottom up for the U.S. market. So it's very varied, the approaches you use. Yes, absolutely. It depends on the brand, and it depends on the brand partner. Uh, I think the next thing is just to make sure that everybody knows how to find out about the company and the website. Perfect. Yeah, if you want to see all of the products at Keiko, you can certainly go to keiko.com and check out our products there. 
Um, or if you want to get deep into Beatology and Wonder Melon, which I highly recommend uh, for this last you know month of summer, you can go to Beatology.com or WonderMelon.com and check us out. We're also on Instagram. Um, we've got offers and giveaways and coupons and all that good stuff. There's a lot of fun stuff happening on social media, so so we hope you'll come visit us. Oh, great. Okay. I'll, I'll visit my refrigerator right after this interview's over. <laughs> Perfect. I hope that will be right around happy hour. <laughs> before, probably, be, probably before then. Well, Kim, it's great talking to you as always, and uh, I'm glad that you keep us on your radar, and I'm happy to keep Keiko on our radar. And come back soon. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. It is absolutely my pleasure on this side. And I hope next time we'll do maybe a happy hour segment where we can be making some cocktails. <laughs> that sounds lovely. That's good. <laughs> Thanks, Kim Kassar. Thank you so much.